0: Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a podcast about the rulers of the ancient Roman Empire. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me as always is Dr. Rhiannon Evans, a senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University. This is episode LXV, Antoninus Pearce. When Emperor Hadrian died in 138 CE, he left a solid succession plan in place. The senator, Antoninus, would keep the seat warm, allowing Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus to come of age and take his place. Antoninus exceeds all expectations, and for the next 22 years he keeps the seat of power very warm indeed. Here's Rhiannon Evans.
1: Antoninus Pius was the emperor who followed the Emperor Hadrian. He became emperor in 138. He was emperor over a fairly successful and peaceful time of the Roman Empire, for 22 years.
0: Mm. A good chunk of a reign. What do we know about him then? What written sources are we dealing with?
1: It's really sad. We have almost nothing.
0: That's so surprising.
1: Yes. I mean, it's a big chunk of Roman history from the second century. We finished with Suetonius and Tacitus, but we've still got quite a lot of sources around. But we only have the Augustan history for Antoninus Pierce, which, as we've discussed before, is not our most reliable and possibly kind of sarcastic and ironic source in some ways.
0: And, but even then, it's just so, it's so brief. What, it is short. Uh, I will count pages. One, two, eleven, twelve. 11 and a half. I've got 11 and a half. It's a bit
1: longer in my Lerb, but that's only because the Latin's in there too.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And and Lerb is a bit of a smaller book. than Yeah, um, and
1: it's got footnotes. Then my Burley. Yes, it's not long. And I I think that's because, I don't want to put people off listening before we start, but it's a peaceful reign. There are still interesting things to say about Antoninus Pierce. Yeah. But we don't have a lot of events. We don't have conspiracies and we don't have big scale wars. And that's what we can often weave a narrative around. Mm. So I don't think anyone's ever going to make a film of Antoninus Pius's
0: life. We don't have Dio either.
1: We don't. And that would be interesting, as it always is, to compare with our biography For some reason, book 70 of Dio's history, which is what should cover those years, is missing and was clearly missing very early because there are other books of Dio that are missing. Mm. Instead, we'll get something that's shorter than Dio did, but still represents a summary of what he recorded um, in what we call the epitome. And this epitome was done by two uh, epitomists. Around 1100, so early 12th century CE, these guys were called Zonarus and Ziphilinus. But we don't have Zonarus and Ziphilinus for Book 70 of Dio because that book was already gone. Already gone by then. Right, yeah. So that's a kind of quirk of history. For some reason, that book had disappeared. The epitomists try to put something together. But they're drawing on the sources they have, which is largely the Historia Augusta, the Augustan history. Mm. So there's not much point in reading it because you're just reading a shorter version of what we've already got in the biography. So that's rather sad. And it's about a page.
0: Just briefly as well, what does the Augustan history say about Antoninus Pius? Because it's very critical of Hadrian and even Trajan to some extent, but it very much changes its tone.
1: Yeah. Look, the, Complete fanboy. This <laughs> it, It's really quite obsequious, isn't it, in its its love of Antoninus Pius. We won't go into this here, but this is one of the reasons why people have thought that the Augustan history was written by different people, because it seems so all over the place in terms of its tone. Yeah. It likes to either love or hate, mostly hate. For Antoninus Pius, it's definitely chosen to only point out the positives, because nobody could really have been this good. Right at the beginning of the Augustan history, so in chapter two of the biography, we get this paragraph that just tells us that he was basically like a god. It says, and I quote, in personal appearance, he was strikingly handsome, in natural talent, brilliant, in temperament kindly. He was aristocratic in countenance and calm in nature, a singularly gifted speaker and an elegant scholar, conspicuously thrifty, a conscientious landholder, gentle, generous, and mindful of others' rights. He possessed all these qualities, moreover, in the proper mean and without ostentation. And, in summary, was praiseworthy in every way and in the minds of all good men, well-deserving of comparison with Numa Pompilius. Now, he's been compared at the end there to the second legendary king of Rome, the one who came after Romulus. Mm. And Numa always gets the, he he rules over a time of peace, whereas Romulus, you know, killed his brother and ruled over a time of war. And Numa invented or brought about lots of institutions and traditions. So he's kind of concerned with civic life and associated with
0: peace. So that's how good he was. Yeah. that tone continues all the way throughout the chapter. Throughout the whole work,
1: basically. Yeah, yeah. But yes. And I think already at this point, I would read between the lines that there's meant to be a comparison with Hadrian, mm. that conspicuously thrifty. Because elsewhere, he says, Antoninus Piers didn't travel much. He only traveled when he had to. Whereas, as we know, Hadrian was the was, restless went, emperor. He was everywhere. always moving yep. around. And it strikes me that there's a bit of the idea that Hadrian was wasting money doing this. Mm. It's a bit like the politicians getting freebies from <laughs> from the uh, public purse. Antoninus Pius didn't do that. He only travelled when he needed to.
0: And that's he used absolutely. his own funds for everything. Yeah,
1: yeah, he did.
0: Anyway, let's wade into that later. What do we know about Antoninus Pius uh, pre-emperor?
1: We know a little bit from the Augustan history about his ethnic background, I guess you'd say, that his family was originally from Transalpine Gaul. So that's over the Alps, but he was actually born in Italy, not that far from Rome, in a place called Lanuvium, which is southeast of Rome. So he's actually born in Latium, getting quite rare by this period for an emperor to be born in Italy. Mm. His family is involved in the imperial administration. Both his grandfather and his father were consuls, both of them called Titus Aurelius Fulwus, and both of them consuls during the reign of Domitian in 85 and 89. This is a family that's doing well under the Flavians. Yeah, yeah. It seems weird to be talking about the Flavians at all about this, but it's so long ago. The family is well in with the imperial administration. Association with Domitian clearly didn't damage the family because he also is brought up as as close to the new emperors, the Trajan and Hadrian, and does well under their administrations.
0: Those consuls were on his father's side, but it was also on, on his mother's side as well, wasn't it?
1: Yes, his mother has a great name, Boionia Procula, and her father, Arius Antoninus, was consul twice. The Augustan history gives us a little anecdote about him, which indicates the kind of tone that it's taking towards power. It says that he is a righteous man who pitied Nerva that he assumed the imperial power. Mm. So this idea that it's actually a bad thing to become emperor because uh, it involves so much responsibility, I suppose. Oh, well, that seems strange to me, coming from a man who was consul twice.
0: It's, it's a bit of a commiseration, though, isn't it? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, it's it's not kind of looking at the now you've got supreme power. It's, it's, it's a, looking at you've got this burden to it, take on.
0: It's a comment over a pint at the end of the day. So he's nervous <laughs> drinking, buddy.
1: <laughs> I, I'm glad you're inventing a narrative for this. But it, it kinda we sh- don't know a lot.
0: <laughs> it kind of shows how close to the seat of power that this family was, I suppose. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's not unlikely that he's going to rise high in
0: politics. Mm. So Antoninus takes his name from this person.
1: Yes, um, he's brought up by his mother's side of the family, as it were. That seems to be an indication that he's adopted into that family. Right. And both sides of the family, obviously being consular, are extraordinarily wealthy, and he inherits from both of them. So he becomes super extraordinarily wealthy.
0: The other thing that we know about him pre-emperor is that uh, this is the time when he establishes his family and his career. So can we talk a bit about his wife, Faustina the Elder? We haven't got an exact date when they get married, but we do get a kind of indication of the relationship that they have.
1: Yeah, he, he marries Faustina at some point in the 110s. Yeah, this is perhaps, I think, the only point where the Augustan history seems a bit equivocal. It seems to be a very happy marriage and Antoninus seems entirely devoted to her. And there are other indications of that as well, given his behavior when she dies. And they have four children together, which, as we've seen, not all emperors and their wives have children. So this is considered a blessing for them. Two sons and two daughters, but the two sons and one of the daughters die before he becomes emperor. So Mm. he's going to be yet another emperor who's not succeeded by his own offspring.
0: But the the last daughter that is remaining is uh, Faustina the Younger.
1: Yes. And she is going to marry...
0: Marcus Aurelius.
1: The next emperor to come, Marcus Mm. Aurelius. So the female line, at least from Antoninus Pius, is keeping it in the family, the imperial family. It's almost running through the female line here. Well,
0: as tend to be the way with modern scholarship, it has actually been traced to about the 400s. So that line continues through Commodus and keeps going.
1: The potentially negative point that the Augustan history makes is that people talked about her a lot. which is Faustina. Ne- yeah, which is never a good thing for a Roman woman. The way it's phrased in the Augustan history is... Let me just find the place. The way it's phrased in the Augustan history is uh, not very clear to me anyway. It says, About the license and loose living of his wife, a number of things were said, which he heard with great sorrow and suppressed. I didn't suppress them that successfully if the Augustan history knows about them. I,
0: but sorry. it didn't say what was said.
1: It doesn't say what was <laughs> said, but, you know, it's all about the way you translate it, because yeah. I think that your translation, you have the Penguin translation, people talk about her excessive frankness and levity. Yes. It doesn't sound quite as serious as loose living. Uh, and the Latin word just says, easiness of living time is not an easy word. It means easy, but it's not an easy word to <laughs> pin down here. Yeah. Her easy way of living could mean that she's very informal. It's, it or c- it could mean she's committing adultery. It
0: could mean that she is excessively frank.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So anyway, she behaves in a way that some people consider is not suitable for an empress, supposedly. And that makes Antoninus Pius sad. And he tries to suppress that information. Sure. It's the only negative we really get here. And in any case... Faustina doesn't get to be empress for very long. She's given the the title Augusta, which is an honor that emperors will give to their wives to show that they have great respect for them. But she dies fairly early on in his reign. He becomes emperor in 138. She dies in the third year of of his reign, Mm. says the History Augusta, which is variously dated to 140 or 141,
0: okay, depending yeah.
1: if you're doing the inclusive counting, which the Romans did. So
0: We do get a kind of indication, though, about the fondness that Antoninus Pius had for Faustina in the fact that he built a massive temple and dedicated it to her. And when I say massive, that's probably a bit of an understatement, really.
1: It's a big temple in the Forum, yeah. which you can actually still see there because... You can see
0: the front door. Of- yeah, it
1: was converted into a church like <sighs> yeah. a lot of other temples. And eventually it becomes, when he dies, the temple of the deified Antonius and Faustina. But initially it's her temple. And that is in such a prominent place and such a great honor to the dead empress that that does indicate certainly great respect for Faustina. You can be cynical and say that it's to his advantage to commemorate a family member in this way. And presumably he knows he's going to be put up there too on the pediment. But it didn't have to happen, even at this point where, following Hadrian, it's become much more normal to deify female members of the imperial family. Mm. You know, it's not out of the question, but the, I think the placement of the temple makes it very significant. Another indication of his affection for Faustina is perhaps that he didn't remarry, although he took a concubine called Galeria Lysistrata, which is a great name too. Freedwoman of his late wife, which you might read as I'm still raising wa- an eyebrow. <laughs> still wanting to maintain the connection with his late wife. Or you think there was some kind of liaison before she died? I said
0: nothing beyond raising mm-hmm. an eyebrow. Well,
1: the, the Historia Augusta would wrap you on the fingers, I think, because it will hear <laughs> nothing bad about him. Although to be honest, for Roman men, that wouldn't be considered out of bounds.
0: Sure, yeah. yeah. So what needs to be said about Antoninus's career then before becoming emperor?
1: Um well of course it was magnificently successful. He was in the Senate, and he was very successful in the Senate. He is respected by the other senators, respected by the Emperor of the time, Hadrian. He goes through what we call the cursus honorum, which still exists, the run of honors, basically the career ladder. Yeah, and um, so he becomes. Quaestor, Praetor, Consul in 120. So he's reached the top of the administrative tree there.
0: And appointed by Hadrian to be one of the four proconsuls to administer Italia. So that's when he divvied up Italy into four different parts. Yeah, uh, that didn't last long, and it wasn't very popular. No, because it sort yeah. of
1: makes Italy look like a province. <laughs> it does, it does,
0: <laughs> but it does indicate how much trust Hadrian has in Antoninus yeah, to put him in, in that kind of position. Because you don't want
1: Italy turning against you.
0: Yeah, but briefly, he left Italy, didn't he?
1: Yeah, oh yeah, you know, he didn't travel much, as mm. the historian Augusta is keen to tell us. But he does become the governor or proconsul of Asia, probably in the mid-130s, so towards the end of Hadrian's reign.
0: And, and because he's so great, he carried out in such a way that he was the only man to excel his grandfather in, yeah. in that position.
1: There's a long history here, which I think that this history is drawing on, of a uh, governor's going to Asia and just basically milking it. Mm. And it's probably referring to that. So people tended to brag if they hadn't stolen stuff from Asia because it had so much wealth. And th- that's probably what's being got out here. Both his grandfather and he were actually fair. Yeah. You know, of course, they had so much money they didn't really need to, did they?
0: That was 134, 135, mm. uh, so not long before he becomes emperor. Uh, but it's also at this point that might be worth pointing out that his daughter dies and that really kind of sets him emotionally back a bit it does point that out but besides that we know nothing of his time there we
1: don't know much of that now
0: all right so previously on emperors of rome on 10th of july 138 ce hadrian dies and antoninus Pius becomes emperor one day later on hadrian's instruction he adopts marcus aurelius and lucius verus lucius is the son of lucius Aelius who Hadrian first adopted as his successor but since passed away, Marcus Aurelius is the son of Antoninus Pius's brother-in-law, and that was Antoninus Pearce's idea to yes. adopt Marcus Aurelius.
1: This is not a dynasty where the son tends to become emperor, but it's still very much that network of family it's a connections. Very, and it's a
0: very planned dynasty. I'm adopting you, but you have to adopt yeah. these two.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of forward thinking here. Mm. Into On the, the part next of Hadrian. Generation. Yeah. Look, I mean, it's successful because it's a smooth transition both times. History has proven that he was right to do this. If you're going to have emperors, then this is a very smooth way to do it.
0: So Antoninus becomes emperor and is quickly given the name Pius. So where does this name come from? And can you talk about the word briefly?
1: Uh, The word Pius sounds like it means pious. Uh. And it sort of does, but it's a really important word in Latin that means dutiful. Dutiful to your family, perhaps especially to your father, to the gods and to the state. So it really covers a lot more than pious for us is really quite specifically about religion, I think. But it doesn't just mean that for the Romans. It means acting as a Roman should. So it's a great name to have because it means they approve of him. Yeah. It's not part of his name that's come down to him. It's one that he sort of earned on his own merits, as it were. It's given as an extra name to him, an honorific name, pretty much like Augustus was given to Augustus. It's interesting to me that the Augustan history doesn't really know why he got this name. So it gives all kinds of suggestions. It gives
0: quite a lot of suggestions. I assume that's what's going on, that it
1: sort of thinks, why would this be? It sort of looks like to me like it's scrabbling around for it. And it does it twice. It talks about it at the end of the life of Hadrian and then does it in the life of Antoninus Pius as well.
0: Hmm. Sorry, where's this one from?
1: This is from the life of Antoninus Pius, chapter two, and it actually follows straight on from where we talked about him being compared with Numa. Mm. It says he was given the name of Pius by the Senate, either because. When his father-in-law was old and weak, he lent him a supporting hand in his attendance at the Senate. But even the Augustan history says, well, come on, anyone would do that. Yeah, That's not a reason to be called Pius." Or because, this could be a better one, I like this one, because he spared those men whom Hadrian, in his ill health, had condemned to death. So and in his last years, remember, Hadrian was a little bit cranky mm. and he decided that the slightest problem he had with someone, that was a reason to execute them.
0: Mm.
1: Those who hadn't been executed before Hadrian died, he said, no, as long as they do no wrong to me, it's fine.
0: And the Senate would have been quite happy that they were not dying.
1: Yes, and later on in the life, it stated that he doesn't execute senators. Yes. Something that has run all the way through The emperors that we've been looking at, often they state they're not going to. Often they end up doing it. Mm. Antoninus Pius doesn't. Or, the third reason, because after Hadrian's death, he had unbounded and extraordinary honours decreed for him, i.e. for Hadrian, in spite of opposition from all.
0: There was opposition to deifying Hadrian. Exactly. And Antoninus, I think the epitome of Dio actually has a decent quote
1: The tiny bit of Dio that we do have epitomized does talk about this. And it's great because it also includes the word demurred, which is brilliant. When the Senate demurred to giving divine honors to Hadrian after his death, on account of certain murders of eminent men. Certain murders. (laughs) Antoninus addressed many words to them with tears and lamentations. And finally said, well, then, I will not govern you either if he has become, in your eyes, base and hostile and a public foe. For in that case, you will, of course, soon null all his acts, of which my adoption was one."
0: Right, yeah.
1: It's actually a masterstroke. And it, I think this is something that we see running through the discussion of Antoninus Pius. is he sorts things out with diplomacy, because really that's a potential put-down of himself, which is saying, if you don't like what Hadrian did, then you don't want me. You don't have to have me. It's very measured, and he's giving them the opportunity to reject him. Calls their bluff and wins, Yes, because they yeah. have to accept that Hadrian is now divine in order to get Antoninus Pius as the emperor.
0: If that's not reason enough to give him the name Pius, we've got two more reasons there, here. <laughs> there are more coming up, <laughs> yeah. yes
1: or because when Hadrian wished to make away with himself by great care and watchfulness he prevented him from so doing so he stopped people helping Hadrian to die and he uh, we went into all of that in the life of Hadrian
0: mm.
1: i have to say i'm not entirely persuaded by that this seems possibly more like a 4th century view than a 2nd century one because suicide for the romans was not a crime we say commit suicide, the Romans wouldn't really think of it in those terms. Okay, yeah. And Hadrian was dying. But I suppose this would be another sign or another indicator that makes Antoninus Pius look different to previous emperors who occasionally have been accused of doing away with their Mm. predecessor. Mm. So it paints him as not being keen to get the power straight away. And then we have one more or, it's a very long sentence, or because he was in fact very kindly by nature and did no harsh deed in his own
0: time. All right, so all-round good guy. Yeah. Very (laughs) pious.
1: Very pious indeed.
0: Can we now uh, turn to what he was like as an emperor? He's got a a long reign there, but we don't know a hell of a lot about it, or there just wasn't a hell of a lot to write about (laughs) it, whichever you choose to be the accurate one there. So he was an emperor who never had a major battle and he didn't have involvement with the military before he became emperor, really. So what was going on in the empire then?
1: Which is interesting that he's so popular considering he didn't have a natural link to the military, Mm. which we've often seen is very insignificant for emperors. He rules over a largely peaceful reign, so he doesn't have to have much contact with the military. He's known for dealing with situations through diplomacy. We're meant to see him at least from the Augustan history's point of view, as somebody who moderates situations before they get out of hand. So I guess they would argue the reason that there are no dramatic events is because he foresees them and nips trouble in the bud. He really didn't need to be engaged with uh, warfare very much, but there was a push a bit further north in Britannia, and that's because there's a rebellion of the Brigantes, who are the British tribes who live around where I grew up in Newcastle. And because of that, and apparently to make that province a little bit more secure, he builds another wall beyond Hadrian's Wall from approximately Glasgow to Edinburgh, as it is now in modern Scotland. That wall doesn't last very long. They don't maintain it for very long. In other places, he tends to make terms with peoples. So in North Africa, he gets the uprising there to sue for peace. There is some uprising in Northern Europe with the Germani and the Dacians, but it's all fairly low-key and put down early in the game, Hmm. and he doesn't have to go there himself. So in a way, he's kind of lucky, but he seems to manage situations
0: well. One thing that he does excel at, it seems, is uh, how he manages the money and the finances in Rome, or he seems to be very generous as well with his own money. So what is, well, I guess, what does the Augustan histories tell us in particular about that?
1: Well, it tells us as we know that he was thrifty. He didn't spend unnecessarily. Of course, because he's not engaging in any major wars, he doesn't have to draw money for those. That's a huge benefit. He can be generous when things go wrong. So if there's a natural disaster he can say, well, we're not going to take taxes from that area while they get themselves together. And, you know, he engages in rebuilding and some new buildings, but particularly rebuilding of older buildings like the Colosseum gets rebuilt during this period. The Mausoleum of Hadrian apparently already needs a bit of restoration. Right. And he's going to end up in there, so that's to his benefit. The Circus Maximus Needs a bit of restoration at this time, the race course. So he does the rebuilding that will make him popular with the people. Mm. And he is, according to the Augustan history, astoundingly popular.
0: He's very thrifty. I mean, he he lives without extravagance. It it points that out as well.
1: Absolutely. So he's not doing much traveling, as we've mentioned. Presumably not interested in living a luxurious lifestyle himself, which would connect him back to both to Numa as uh, the historia augusta stresses but also to augustus um who was known for having a fairly modest uh, private life and he didn't keep all of the property that had been built up as part of the imperial property portfolio yeah. he just lived on his own property he wasn't kind of making a strain on the the public budget there the Augustan history is very keen to say that, you know, he, he wasn't living like a pauper. He made the job of emperor look as respectable as it should. But at the same time, that it wasn't over the top. It wasn't opulent. It wasn't too extravagant. This is always the mark in Roman histories of a good emperor, someone who's prepared to share their private space or private fortune with the public. So, you know, after Nero died, we had all of that converting his... Domus Aurea, his golden house, back into spaces for the public, Mm. like the Colosseum, like bath buildings. Uh, He has a private bath building that he opens up to the public. So this is always a sign that while you're not a man of the people, you're sort of acting like you are. However, this is presented as a positive, but I'm not sure I see it as one. The history tells us that he took away the salaries of many people who didn't seem to be doing anything, including reducing the salary of Massomedes the lyric poet. I don't think (laughs) lyric poets should have their salaries reduced. So they love everything he does. They love this thriftiness.
0: So the Senate must have been a big fan of him then for ruling everybody uh, evenly, for not killing any of them. (laughs) (laughs) That
1: one especially. For
0: being one of them, I suppose. He was a man who came from the Senate, so he very much knew what interests they had in mind. And
1: he consulted with them. He consulted with the Senate and he also had his kind of inner circle of concilium, his council. Every important question would be put before them. Yeah. But we're never told that they include Friedman because that's always a negative. As we've seen before at various times, the Senate, they decree honours, they give him the name Pius. Another thing that they want to do is to name two of the months after him and his wife. So they want September and October to be changed to Antoninus and Faustina. And he just says no.
0: Mm, One honour too far.
1: (laughs) Well, we know this has happened in the past, of course, with uh, July and August. Mm. But Nero had tried to do it and it wasn't popular and got wiped out after his death. It will happen again, a few emperors on. After Julius Caesar and Augustus, it always seems to be seen as a sign of megalomania. And so Antoninus Pius is quite clever to turn that down, I think. But the fact that it's offered by the Senate rather than being imposed by him is important anyway.
0: So for 22 years, we've only got a uh, a couple of instances as well, or at least that we know about where somebody tried to, to take over in any way, or that there was a conspiracy against the emperor. So can you tell me quickly, what do we know about those?
1: Yeah, we know very little. We do know the names of people who attempted to get rid of him and usurp his power. Atilius Titianus... He doesn't seem to want to be involved in the punishing of this person. So he hands it over to the Senate um, and he doesn't want to know who the accomplices are because it's very unlikely he did it on his own. But Antoninus Pius says, I don't want you to investigate that. And he doesn't continue any punishment on to uh, Titianus' son, who is helped on his way. And secondly is a man called Priscianus who died while he was trying to usurp the emperorship by killing himself. And again, Antoninus Pius doesn't want this conspiracy to be investigated. Mm. So, he's not interested in what we would call a witch hunt, making sure, you know, everybody who had any connection with these people is wiped out because they might be a danger. He's not somebody who is paranoid. There'd be a contrast there with a few emperors, particularly perhaps Domitian.
0: The other thing that I suppose that we should uh, mention that is during his reign, he very much made sure that Marcus Aurelius was properly prepared for being the emperor by himself. Antoninus Pius was maybe always seen as a bit of a bridging for Hadrian between himself and Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. So how did he prepare Marcus Aurelius then?
1: Well, from very early on, he gives him positions of responsibility. So two years into his reign in 140, Marcus Aurelius is consul already. If he dies in the 40s, Marcus Aurelius has already had the connections with the Senate. He's had to carry out those roles of responsibility in administration. And throughout his reign, Marcus Aurelius is taking on those administrative tasks. So... When we come to Marcus Aurelius, there's no reason for him not to be prepared for this position. So it's kind of carrying out Hadrian's wishes because Hadrian has seen this, you know, two generations on of who will be emperor. And Antoninus Pius being Pius, it's exactly what he does.
0: But it's almost uh, the Prince Charles because he's had the training wheels on for so long.
1: Yes, that I, that was in my mind at that point, the the person who's being prepared. I mean, for him, it's from birth yeah. for this role. But the person he's taking over from lives a very long time. Antoninus Pius lived in his 70s, not quite as long as the queen. But yeah, Antoninus Pius was emperor for a lot longer than anybody supposed that he would be. Nevertheless, Marcus Aurelius is still going to be emperor for 19 years. Yeah. So there's a good chunk of power waiting for him there. It's not going to be quite as peaceful as Antoninus Pierce's reign.
0: <laughs> okay, so uh, so how does he die then? It's, it's very much a peaceful death of, with no suspicions or anything. But he was quite old then. He was in his mid-70s, wasn't he?
1: Yes, so he dies in his sleep, but he's clearly been a little invalided for a while. He can't walk very easily. Apparently been strapped into lindenwood boards on his chest so he could walk upright towards the end of his life. But it is the death that you would expect from a man who's had this extremely successful and peaceful reign. He dies at his home in his ancestral estates in Laurium in Italy on the 7th of March 161. And it's extremely successful and long reign, the longest reign since Augustus. So since the first emperor, Yeah, he's the second longest. And of course, and predictably, he is instantly deified. The Pius name, I think, was already an indicator that he was going to be Debus mm. as soon as he dies. Yeah. Not controversial, even. He is considered the best Princeps, which, of course, was what Trajan had been considered. But anyway, <laughs> now another one's come along and he's put into Hadrian's mausoleum. That's the building that his father has built for their dynasty. Yeah. And we have a rare happy ending, I think, a rare happy reign.
0: Hooray. Nothing yeah.
1: bad to say about it. Who knows what we would know if we had all of Dio. All right. So, did, did somebody wipe that out because something really dreadful happened that needed to be suppressed?
0: Here is the devil's avocado in it, though. <laughs> is Antoninus Pius less a great emperor and more so an ineffective one? As in, did he leave too many problems for Marcus Aurelius?
1: <laughs> well, I suppose that the most obvious place people would look to for that is that he suppressed uprisings in Germania and Marcus Aurelius is going to be left with problems for the Roman Empire in Germania throughout most of his reign. And
0: over towards Syria as well, he could have preemptively taken care of things rather than just negotiated.
1: Yeah, it's very easy to speak with hindsight, isn't it? Um, I mean, the alternative, something we're still familiar with, I suppose, is to go to war, Mm. and that can raise all kinds of other Hmm. problems. Certainly, the treasury wouldn't have been as quite as balanced if he'd carried out both of those wars. That's right, and-
0: we, we didn't say that it was left in surplus, wasn't it? Yeah, it's it, very rare, very rare. It was a, a left in surplus for the next emperor, which is just in time for the Antonine Plague and all the wars to come through. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. He didn't anticipate those. Unfortunately, the paucity of evidence means it's quite hard to judge him either way. Yeah, whether there were signs that this was a ticking time bomb and he was ignoring it or. Maybe these problems were under control under Antoninus Pius, hmm. and it goes wrong because he's not there.
0: But regardless, and all of that aside, uh, contemporary Rome, a happy and prosperous place. Wait, wait, wait. I've got a an oversell from the Augustan histories here, which is, Certainly he ruled the people subject to him with great care that he looked after everything and everyone as if it were his own. The provinces all flourished under him, Informers were stamped out. Well, that was a rather strange way to end that sentence, but still,
1: I think this might be the time to live. If you had to live in ancient Rome, you can just live your happy, peaceful life, as we all
0: pretty much hope to. If only he funded the poets a bit better. <laughs> That's Dr. Rihanna Evans, senior lecturer in ancient Mediterranean studies at La Trobe University, and you've been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, please consider giving us a review on iTunes. Reviews are muchly appreciated, and you can also subscribe there. Make sure you subscribe to the other podcast, When in Rome, where the next episode will be on the column of Antoninus Pius. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook, and you can follow both myself and Rhiannon Evans on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans, and I'm at Nightlight Guy. In the next episode, we enter the age of Marcus Aurelius. But until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.